Hey friends, before we get into today's episode, I wanted to first of all say, hi, it's great to be back. If you're a fan of Lipmatch, you know that I have been on maternity leave the past few months, and I'm excited to be back here with you and provide wonderful and insightful content about the publishing industry from professionals in the industry as we move into these next weeks. Second, I wanted to share that Savannah and I are hosting a virtual book club meeting this month. So if you've never heard about it, Savannah Gilbo, who is the book coach and certified developmental editor, who joins me for this episode's first chapter deep dive analysis, we host a virtual book club called Book Notes. And we created this book club specifically designed for fiction writers because we wanted to help you learn how to master the craft. So if you enjoy first chapter episodes like this and taking deep dives on the scene level, to really understand what makes a story hook our reader and move us with great enthusiasm into the story. And you'd like to take that even further. You'd like to understand how the story as a whole really captures and commands a reader to the point of becoming a bestseller or even a phenomenon in the publishing industry. Then you might enjoy our next meeting. We are meeting on November 16th. 2023. This will be the last book club that we have in the year. And it's from 4 p.m. Pacific to 6 p.m. Pacific or 7 p.m. Eastern to 9 p.m. Eastern. I'm very excited about this one. Going to analyze The Fourth Wing by Rebecca Yaros. You can learn more or sign up for the book club meeting on Savannah's website, savannagilbo.com slash book dash club. We know it's fantasy. We're satisfied it's fantasy because especially at the end of that chapter, when you move into the very fantastical portal experience, we know we're here. Fantasy readers are satisfied because of that. But I think that this first chapter's expectations promise something much deeper than just the fun of fantasy and we can be here we can you know buckle your seatbelts for the fun ride as a fantasy story yet i think that the emotional story is extremely loud and you cannot ignore that because of yeah. how grounded we are in what quentin is struggling with internally his depression his sadness Hey there, and welcome back to Lit Match. This is a podcast made to help writers find the best literary agent and business partner for their writing career. I'm Abigail Perry, a book coach and certified developmental editor who is eager to help writers learn how to blend business with passion. We do this with three major ways, interviewing literary agents, interviewing authors, and taking first chapter deep dive analysis in order to really understand and master sample pages or first pages. In today's episode, I'm bringing to you a first chapter deep dive analysis of Lev Grossman's The Magicians, and I'm paired once again with my fabulous friend and amazing book coach, Savannah Gilbo, who is a fantasy expert. So this is a really fun first chapter deep dive, especially since Savannah is a huge advocate, huge fan of this book, has read this book multiple times. And this is one that I read many, many, many years ago and haven't read actually in a long time. So it was fun to look at the first chapter together and see what I was anticipating as these big picture expectations in the scene analysis 
based on my limited memory of what happened, not having read it multiple times, and compare that with Savannah, who knows this book inside and out. Also, if you're a fan of Lip Match and you've been here for a while, you know that I have been out on maternity leave these past few months, and I am so excited to be back and to be here with you again. Without further ado, let's get into that first chapter analysis. Hey, Savannah, thanks so much for joining me for this amazing episode. We are going to take another deep dive analysis into a first chapter. And before we do that, I'm sure people will hear this. I have a scratchy voice today. I'm sure I'm getting over some sort of preschool germs. So sorry if my voice cuts out at some point, but luckily I have the amazing Savannah here with me. So we are going to hash out the first chapter of Love Grossman's The Magicians. And I know that this is a super popular book. This is a book that I read many, many, many years ago now. I'd have to look at when this is even copyright, but it was more towards the beginning of its publishing. Yeah, I think and it was 2009. 2009? Okay. So I I think I probably read it in like the 2011, 2012 time. And I have not read it since then. So I read the first chapter again, obviously in preparation for this, but it is a doozy as Savannah had mentioned to me. This is going to be fun to chat about and pull apart together. Sure. And it's so funny because I'm coming to it a little bit from the opposite angle where I love this series. I love this book. I love the show. Kind of super obsessed with it. I think about it often, even though there are things like, you know, no story's perfect, but there's a lot in these books that I love. And so I'm coming at it from kind of the nerd angle, which will be fun because we're going to see not only was this a hard chapter to analyze, which we haven't really done much preparation and you'll hear that. We wanted to kind of hash it out during the episode to show you that we also struggle with this stuff. But also we're coming at it from two different perspectives, which I think is super fun. So like Abigail said, she knows the story, but it's been a long time. So she's coming at it with more of fresh eyes. And then I'm coming at it from being in the weeds. So we'll see kind of where we, you know, find similar things, find different things, and it'll be fun. And I really like when we pair up and we do first chapters with those different perspectives, because as a writer, when I'm thinking about, you know, all you writers out there who are listening to this, you have those books that you absolutely love that you've read multiple times before. And then you read the first chapter and you're going to just naturally pick up on details, setups, important, like even just one liners that have significance into the story later. And that can influence how you might dissect the first chapter or the first scene. And then there's, of course, the first time readers or the you know second time readers, maybe you haven't read it in a while like me. And that is really cool because you you have this opportunity to dive into the story and ask yourself, what really were you drawn to? What is really standing out as a strong first chapter for you? And then through discussion, we can talk about, but why is this a great execution and introduction to what this story is really about? So it's fun to to have the different perspectives. And the other thing I'll say on that too, it's uh, we were doing a scene analysis in my Story Lab membership the other day. So shout out to everybody in my Story Lab membership. And we were just talking about how interesting it is if you haven't read the whole story and you're looking at, let's say, the first chapter, you're usually, you'll get caught in kind of the surface level of what's happening. But if you've read it more than once, or let's say it's your story that you're trying to craft and analyze, then you can get to that deeper level of understanding. But there is a risk because at some point, it's like you've been with the material for so long that it becomes really hard to see the different pieces. So I I just think the whole thing's fascinating, but it's 
I also love coming at it from these two perspectives for the same reason you said. Definitely. Yeah. So Savannah, before we go into the analysis, and I know, I know that you've written a, a summary, so we're going to talk about the summary before we go into the first chapter. For those sure. out there who don't know what The Magicians is, could you give a brief description about what the story is about? Yeah, in it's like most simple form. It's about a guy named Quentin Coldwater. He's, I believe he's 17, but he's basically, they're getting ready to go to college and they stumble into this other world. It's a portal fantasy and they end up going to a school to become magicians. So instead of going on like, you know, the Yale track or whatever, Princeton, they end up going to school to become magicians. And then as they're there, they get into kind of magical, you know, adventures and then things. And they end up in a land called Fillory, which is from a popular book series in the book. So in The Magicians, there's a book series called Fillory and Further. And they end up visiting that land and, you know, having magical adventures there. But what is operating beneath all or underneath all that fun stuff is that Quentin is a he's an unhappy guy. He's arguably dealing with depression and anxiety and stuff like that. So the story's about is he going to find happiness in his own world? Is Fillory going to be the answer, which he thinks it's going to be? Or like, how is he going to deal with these feelings of depression and unhappiness? When he gets kind of a chance that all of us readers, we all might want, right? Like, gosh, we wish we could escape to a magical world to escape our problems sometimes, right? But we'll see through Quentin's story if you read the book that it's not always the case. When I picked up this book, you and I both love Harry Potter, Savannah. Yeah. Yeah. Anyone who knows this knows that we are obsessed with Harry Potter. And I would say that when you're looking for, okay, I want a book like Harry Potter, People tend to recommend The Magicians. That's, I know, how it got recommended to me. And a lot of that, I think, is because of the school system. Like, we're entering another school system based in magic. We'll probably get into this when we talk about what type of story this is. But it's interesting because we have an older audience. Like you said, Quentin's dealing with big internal struggles. And not that Harry Potter's not. But he's dealing with a different age group, I would say, of internal struggles. And we get that pretty much in the first chapter. So that's pretty cool as well. And I know that you have some thoughts on genre. So why don't we go ahead and get into the summary and get into the questions so that we can explore those ideas. Sure. So I'll just read a quick summary of the first chapter. And it's not a fast chapter. It's like five, six, seven thousand words. So it's a doozy of a first chapter, but there are multiple scenes in it, which we'll see in a second. But basically... Quentin Coldwater, he's walking through Brooklyn with his two friends, James and Julia. And internally, he's reflecting on like, why is he so unhappy? So he's thinking about all this stuff as Quentin and James are, they're about to do their alumni interview with this alumni from Princeton. And then Julia is going to head back to the library kind of once she drops him off on the doorstep. So meanwhile, Quentin's thinking about, you know, why am I so happy or unhappy? And part of it is because James and Julia are together. So That's a fact that Quentin dislikes because he's attracted to Julia and he knows she's never going to reciprocate. And also, Quentin, objectively, he knows he should be happy. So he's like, I come from a reasonably good middle class home. I have decent parents. I have good friends. So despite my very high GPA and he says performing all the rituals and sacrifices necessary to be happy, he's not. And so we learn through his thoughts that he believes there must be more to life and his thoughts drift to his favorite fantasy book series, Fillory and Further. And 
He, you know, he's thinking about these books. We learn there are five in total. They follow the adventures of the five Chatwin children as they go from our world to the land of Fillory. And then we realize that though Quentin's almost an adult, he's super engrossed by these books and he often escapes into the world of Fillory when he finds real life too difficult to cope with. So that's kind of all going on as they're on their way to this building, apartment building, whatever, to interview with the guy from Princeton. But once they arrive, Julia leaves for the library and Quentin and James knock on the door. Nobody answers. And then when they knock a second time, the door kind of creaks open and Quentin wanders in because he's pulled forward by this secret hope that, you know, this is how it starts in the Fillory books. Something strange happens and then they find a cabinet or a clock and the kids go through and they're taken to Fillory. So he's kind of driven by this motivation that he can't quite admit. And then he wanders around the house. James is still on the doorstep and he goes up to a cabinet. He tries to open the back thinking he's going to go to Fillory. And then he's disappointed when he can't or when it doesn't open. And then he turns around and he spots a dead body on the floor of the den in the house. And then we learn that 15 minutes later, paramedics arrive and one of the paramedics tells Quentin the man died of a cerebral hemorrhage. So there was kind of nothing they could do. And then she hands Quentin and James each an envelope with their name on it, but only Quentin agrees to take his. And then so, you know, fast forward a little bit. They leave the house. Quentin and James separate. They're both grumpy. James goes to the library to find Julia and Quentin decides he's going to look in his envelope. And then to his surprise, he finds a manuscript that's titled The Magician's Book Six of Fillory and Further. So, of course, he's very interested. And as he turns that front page to read it, he, there's a note inside. But before he can read it, it gets picked up by the wind. So then he's following this piece of paper as it blows around uh, the streets of Brooklyn and he follows it into a neglected garden. And he's kind of walking through Bramble and getting hurt and all this stuff. And then he notices that things are quiet and the din of the city is gone. He feels super nauseous and he closes his eyes, even though he's like, you know, still going forward. And when he opens them, he finds himself under a deep or a blue sky staring at a great green lawn and a large stone house. So he's totally been transported somewhere different. There's a kid, a teenager there when he pops out and Quentin says, is this Fillory? And the boy says, no, this is upstate New York. And that's where the chapter ends. I love that ending too. <laughs> Me too. <laughs> I love that last line. Okay, awesome. So as usual in our deep dive analysis episodes, we will go through the seven key first chapter questions first. So we're looking at big picture at all of these. How is this first chapter hooking readers, getting us to read more because it is satisfying these seven key first chapter questions, which come from Paula Munay's The Writer's Guide to Beginnings. And then we're going to zero in and we'll look at the micro story. So we'll start to look at scene structure. Lots of interesting discussion to come with that because this is a very challenging first chapter to analyze by scene level, but obviously it has masterful scenes. So we'll get into that. Let's go ahead and move into the seven first chapter questions. So the first of these is dealing with genre. And the question is, what kind of story is this? Right. And, and so, of course, like we usually talk about two types of genres, content genre and commercial genre. So Savannah, first, what is the commercial genre for this? How would we market this? Yeah. And then let's move into content genre, meaning what kind of story is this 
on content-wise. Yeah, on yeah, right. content-wise on that deep level. Mm-hmm. Okay, so commercially, this I looked it up. It's technically marketed as an adult fantasy novel, which you know the the first thing we want to look at when it comes to commercial genre is do we get a sense of that in these in this opening chapter? I think we do. There's multiple things that, in my opinion, show the magical side of it. So. Obviously, Quentin's doing a lot of thinking about fillering further where kids literally go to a magical land. He's, you know, checking out cabinets in a real home to see if he can go to fillery. He's doing magic tricks in his pockets. That's like a different element of magic. The way the paramedic interacts with him, you can tell something's something's up. We just don't quite know what she makes light of the situation. Like, yeah, we're not supposed to let the people die, but, you know, sometimes it happens there's little things. And then obviously he pops out in a totally different climate under a different sky. So I think there's a lot that points to the fantasy element and also the adult age range, kind of like we talked about earlier, the heavy topics, the age of the protagonist and things like that. I think that being listed as adult fantasy, I think that's something interesting that I want to talk about quickly, because when I originally read this, there was a category called new adults. Yeah. And I would have placed this one in that. And new adult is kind of that in-between age for the protagonist and for the reader, more like that college level. Right. And this is Quentin. He's interviewing for Princeton. So we know that he's heading into more of the college education level versus the high school level. We're not really in young adult, but we're not quite in the adult area of maturity either. But since then, I think that that category has... If you say new adult, people still understand what it is, but I don't think it's quite pitched or existing as much anymore. Would you agree with that, Savannah? I do. And so I love new adult. I'm a firm believer that there is a new adult category and that the readers want it. I think for some reason, publishers just aren't there yet. And I don't understand why. I mean, I just Googled to see, I wanted to get us a definition. So This says the protagonists are 18 to 29, but, you know, loose on that. So it's older than young adult, like Abigail said, but it's less than typical adult or it can be. And these could be things. So like Jennifer Armentrout, Sarah J. Mass, even they have Colleen Hoover listed on here. So, I mean, Casey McQuiston's Red, White and Royal Blue. So there's, a you know, a ton of things that are super popular in this category. But yeah, yeah, I agree with you. For some reason, it's just kind of not technically so it's being publishers becoming a thing right like it's being listed as adult but what we're really dealing with here in this in the siege group is that we're dealing with protagonists who have are in the real world now but yeah. haven't quite figured it out right no, not that a 30 year old has figured it out either <laughs> i'm in my 30s and i have not figured it out right <laughs> but i'll just say like that it is this it's this kind of all right we have left innocence and we're into this new area where we're breaking that innocence. It still exists a, li- exist a little yeah. bit, but it's being broken more so. And just like, you know, we still have these big coming of age moments. And I like I'm a firm believer that you can have a coming of age experience at any time in your life, Me too. at any decade. When we think traditionally of coming of age, I think that you think the younger years, like you're right. thinking more of those high school years young years, those middle grade years. And then especially here, I think sometimes you have the rudest awakenings when you actually enter the the right part in this college-esque time, these 20s. All that to say, I'm rambling a little bit, but I think that this 
this is why when someone would say to me, oh, well, you want another Harry Potter, go try this one, but it's for the older audience, which is also really strategic in how this was placed. Because if you look at publishing, like you had, I grew up with Harry Potter, Savannah grew up with Harry Potter as we were aging with Harry. And then it was like, wait, what's next? And here, here comes the magicians. So I think that that's just something interesting to think about when I'm thinking what kind of story this is. Definitely fantasy. But the other thing that I think is really interesting because when we were learning about Fillory and to me, when I'm reading about Quentin's obsession with Fillory, immediately just the way that there are the portals, I think, because this is where I was and like what I would have fantasized with, I'm thinking C.S. Lewis. I'm thinking Chronicles of Narnia. So that felt really reminiscent of a Chronicles of Narnia to me and how he, Quentin will discuss about how being the nerd and being obsessed with it. He has a line in there somewhere about why Julia will never go for him. And he's right. like, partly because of his obsession with Fillory. And it's it's not necessarily that reason, but I think it's the idea that he needs to go to this this other world when he is feeling down. And that's also very relatable for a lot of readers, especially fantasy readers. Right. And we'll talk about that when we kind of get to the character, but we know that there are fantasy. I'm getting to this point because we know that there are fantasy elements. We know that there are going to be magical elements. Exactly what you said. We can tell some things are off based on how the scene progresses because of his fascination with magic, with these portals, right. with these other worlds. So we know that's going there. What I think is so interesting is that the actual first page doesn't really give hints of fantasy. It takes a couple of pages to get into the fantasy. The actual first page really grounds us in. I would say voice and character right? and how Love Grossman is leaning on his strength of just really writing style and how he can pull us in with the voice through the interiority of Quentin. And I think that that's really interesting because that makes it very emotional to me. So when we talk about content genre, I'm leaning into that worldview area. And Savannah, you had mentioned that off podcast that you felt this is really a worldview story as well. And I, I feel that I feel that emotional connection, like very in, internally, this the struggles, the emotional struggles here are going to be a big gameplay in how this story is executed. And that's really what the first chapter felt like it went in. I mean, the first page felt like it focused the most on. And then as you get into it, you can tell we're going to have these action stakes as well. When you get to the dead body, that's interesting because like the line, the way the line is delivered, you're thinking, wait a second, is there a crime in here? And then you explore, no, it's the cerebral hemorrhage, but is it right? So like that, I think that's something to be thinking about. So what you can see, like there are going to be lots of stakes for genre, but there's a lot going on in this first chapter that captures us as a reader on multiple levels. And we know it's fantasy. We're satisfied as fantasy because especially at the end of that chapter, when you move into the very fantastical like portal experience we know we're here fantasy readers are satisfied because of that but i think that this first chapter's expectations promise something much deeper than just the fun of fantasy and that just i can put in quotes because nothing is ever just a story (laughs) but to kind of to kind of get into that idea of yes like we have checked off the box that there's something magical here yet i think that the emotional story is extremely loud and you cannot ignore that because of how grounded we are in what Quentin is struggling with internally, his depression, his sadness, and a lot of it too, like his concentration, what he focuses on, coming on a 20-year-old boy 
and he's thinking about girls, right? So, you know, we have a lot with that. And it's the level, going back to that category of new adult versus young adult, but not that this is the only difference that deciphers YA versus new adult or adult, but the sophistication of one person wanting to be with another person is deeper. They even talk about sleeping with one another. So it's not that obviously you can't have sex in young adult books, but we can see that there is a more deep-rooted level of intimacy between what Quentin wants and what he feels like he can't have and how much that consumes him in this age group. Yeah, and I want to add two things to that. So the first is the very first line is, Quentin did a magic trick nobody noticed. So it's funny that even though we're not getting like fantasy magic necessarily, we're showing that this is a kid. And then, I mean, he does magic, this exact kind of magic trick to impress the people at break bills. It's just they have different expectations of what that trick is going to mean. But it is kind of funny, like it's just a unique way to get in magic without it being like the fantasy magic. The other thing I think it's so funny because for me as a reader, I really relate to Quentin in the sense that. Like, honestly, I still wish my Hogwarts letter would show up. OK, I'm I'm in my mid 30s. I still wish it would come. I still wish I'm like Quentin. I would discover a cabinet that takes me to a different world. Like, I don't know what that says about me, but I relate so much to him as a fantasy reader. So when I see his longings, I'm like, I get you. I feel like this I'm in the fantasy world kind of with you, you know. So that that to me was like a, a signal that this is also going to be fantasy because this is what he's focused on. What was it? Was like, it John? Was it John Truby who did the anatomy of genre? Is that what? Yes. Yeah. What did he say about fantasy books? People who love fantasy. It was something like, I'm totally going to butcher this. So like, not only do we like the wonder and the things like that, but we but, have visions and passions about the world becoming a better place. So yeah. it's like, I don't know what I want to say, but not that we're idealists, but like we really just want the world to become a better place and fantasy yeah. helps us explore and realize like what could be possible. Yes. Yeah. And I I relate to that as well because I am in with you right there, yeah. Savannah, and that I want my Hogwarts letter. I want the portal, the sense of escapism. Yeah. Right? Escapism. I, I'm not saying that escapism, we're... Escapism. Yeah. <laughs> escapism. <laughs> I kept that in on that extra ism. Yeah. <laughs> but I think that it's that's what it speaks to. Like when I'm reading something with Quentin, I've found him. We'll get into this with the character, but he is very relatable. A lot of fantasy readers, right. I feel like they can connect with that feeling. You know, it's interesting to see the rootedness of depression or at least unhappiness in him in needing that, why he goes to Fillory when he goes to those places, because we are dreaming about something right. that could be better. And maybe that world can give it to us and what we can bring back from that world into our world. Yes. So just interesting way to set that up for the fantasy. Well, and one thing I want to talk about too, because I'm thinking of the listeners and what you said, because I agree, I, th- I do think this is primarily a worldview story. And I want to talk about why, because mm-hmm. we have analyzed Harry Potter as action. So If I'm a listener, I might say, okay, what's the difference? Because they both have worldview. They both have action. And so we need to ask, like, what is the difference and how would we decide what our stories are more about? So in Harry Potter, there's this big identity thing, right? Like, am I the boy who lived? Do I belong here? Whatever. There's also Voldemort. There's, you know, life and death things that happen on on the page, on the surface. In The Magician's, 
we start out with this big question of like, why am I so unhappy? He tells us in the text, Quentin tells us that he goes to books to escape his depression. He wishes that Fillory could come in and save him from the way that his mind works. He thinks if he goes to another land and if he could find his Fillory, then he would be happy. So he's putting a lot of emphasis on the external to find his happiness. And then throughout the story, which we'll talk about more, the plot throws things at him that says, okay, here's what you wanted. Are you getting that happiness or not? And then usually it's like not, but sometimes he does. And then it keeps coming back to this question of, is the other world offering you what you thought you were missing? Are you happy now, Quentin? And so that's what is going to change throughout the story. Where in Harry's, Harry Potter, he has this internal worldview arc, right? Like he has to accept his past and he has to find the courage to step into who he is and all that stuff. He, you know, find his place, find his belonging. But it's different. The weight of the genres feel different. And, you know, Abigail and I like to think about like some of these stories as being equally weighted. So when I say they're the weight is different, it could be the difference of like 45% one and 55% the other and then flip it, you know, so it could still be very, very close. But I think what is the emphasis in these opening pages? It's Quentin has this worldview that says if he goes somewhere else to a magical land, all of his problems will be solved. And throughout the story, you see him put his emphasis on different things. Like if I can, you know, now that I'm in the physical kid's cottage, I think I'm going to be happy. Now that I'm in Fillory, I think I'm going to be happy. So it's always brought back down to that through line. Where in Harry Potter, it's kind of always brought down to the through line of Voldemort is out there and something bad is happening. And I don't know if I'm going to survive this. I love how you executed that. I think that you get that in this first chapter. Even yeah. just how a lot of the times, especially in the earlier books with Harry Potter, we have those prologues and disguises. Yeah. And even if Voldemort isn't on the page, we are always getting something about that main villain in some way. Harry's right. a, Chamber of Secrets is the one that I analyzed really deeply. So I remember it's a lot with Harry dealing with the his worst birthday ever at the Dursleys. But there is a chunk that reminds us about Voldemort. And then after Voldemort, we see mysterious eyes. We're always pulling us back to that. Where in The Magicians, it's not that case. Like in Sorcerer's Stone, it's the opening of the day that Voldemort has been right. you know, destroyed, right? Right. So... I think that with the magicians, we are being more pulled into what is Quentin going to do with his next steps and why is he dealing with this fascination? Really, his obsession of going to the other place. And then what is he going to do with that when he's given it? So, yeah. And is I, it true? Like, we're wanting to find out too. Like, again, this is us in a way, right? Like, for me, when I'm reading it, I'm like, but does he go to Fillory and is he mm -hmm. happier? Because I want to know mm -hmm. that secret, you right. know? And then we find right. out, I mean, spoiler, and we'll talk about the ending, but. We find out that's not necessarily the case, right? Like he right. comes back to the real world eventually. He's still not super happy. And we'll talk about that. But yeah, it's it's a slight difference. And you said something that piqued my interest because I was like, oh, a, a listener might flag this. What was it? Mm -hmm. Oh, so it was the fact that you didn't really say this, but I was thinking Martin Chatwin is mentioned and he's kind of the one of the big villains in this book, right? So he's mentioned, but... You know, he's unlike Harry, Quentin's not necessarily on Martin Chatwin's radar. They kind of have nothing to do with each other. Uh, but in Harry Potter, we kind of come in with this built-in villain. Right. Who, and we know, you know, once we read multiple books, we know that there's this prophecy that really links them together. 
And in theory, if Quentin kind of never went to break bills, if he never went to fillery and did all this stuff, who knows if Martin Chatwin would have even cared who he was. Yes. Yeah. So it's just a different setup. But I do. I love this conversation and I think it's super interesting. Yeah. And that's also how we can be doing the same but different. We have elements of fantasy that we need to satisfy for the reader. And we're seeing those set up in this first chapter with how, especially as you go further and further into the first chapter, you're moving now into this more fantastical world, this more fantastical setting. Right. But we're, we're definitely changing up what exactly is the protagonist's role? What exactly is the plot that we're going to explore here on a different percentage level, like you said? So what is the what is the conflict? How big is the conflict going to be? Right. One more thing on that, too. So like if we were writing, imagine writing a setup of Harry Potter, but with a character like Quentin. But an 11-year-old boy is not going to be able to think of themselves in this way. So no. it wouldn't make sense to have the focus be on a worldview story, right? We're not... Right sophisticated enough to be aware of our own worldviews in most cases right and to be questioning why is my worldview this way why am i unhappy you know to be thinking this clearly about how can i change this or how can i soothe my depressed soul right so it's just an interesting thought exercise and that's like the sympathetic factor and i'm going to save this for the character question because it's a better character question but i want to Remind me if I don't, I want to talk about the difference of the sympathetic factor. Like they're both right. sympathetic, but sympathetic and there are different ways. Right. Okay. So yeah. that's, okay. that's where we landed on content genre. We think it's primarily worldview with very heavy action elements. So if they're not right. equal, then they're re- really close to being equal is right. what we'll say. Which and Savannah and I say this all the time, the closer you can get those percentages, the stronger I find the story personally. Me too. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, that's what I when I am saying this is going to be a bestseller, that's what I'm looking for. Yeah. All right. So the second question we're going to do with plot and it's what is the story really about? So we we know genre. We know our target reader. You know, the big elements that we're going to satisfy on that what the reader picks up the book for. But what is the plot about? What is the story actually about? And so we kind of talked about a lot of this, right? So it's it's Quentin thinks that magic or that something else besides reality will solve his problems. And, you know, as he goes to break bills, he gets into the magical college as he goes to he makes friends, he goes to fillery, all this stuff. It's whether or not that his hypothesis is true. Then by the end, not to spoil too much of it. I mean, it is 2009 that it came out. So whatever. But basically, he finds out that what he thought was not quite true. Danger, bad things happen in the magical world. and Both worlds are not black and white. There's bad and good things in both worlds. and Regardless of all the magic, that's what we're reading about. We're reading about what's going to happen to this guy. Is he going to find that happiness he seeks? And then we have a really fun backdrop that this unfolds in. Do you think that that can also be discussed in the realm of like heroes can be villains? Do you think that's something that he starts to learn or is that not really relevant to this? I mean, yeah, I, because he he's a little disillusioned with the with Martin Chatwin. Uh, I, mean, I only asked that because you had brought up Martin Chatwin. Yeah, so, so I mean, I do think that it's basically anything he th- he puts on a pedestal is whether it's fillery, other kids, Martin Chatwin, whatever it is, he's learning that it, things aren't black and white and that good guys can have bad parts, good places can have bad parts, mm-hmm. reality can have good parts, just shaking yeah. him up. Right. All <laughs> right. So the third question deals with point of view. And this is who is the, telling the story. So right away, we need to know who is telling the story and why is that a great choice for this story? 
Yeah. So we're limited to Quentin's point of view, I believe, in the whole book. Third person limited right now. Yeah, first third person. person limited. And I think there are a few instances where it kind of starts to hint omniscient, kind of like when we talked about Harry Potter. It's like mm-hmm. a few sentences here and there kind of lean that way. But, you know, if I had to say something overall, I think it's third person limited. Yeah, I I'd agree with that. Quentin. I didn't feel like we got large windows into James no, or into, you know, the paramedic. Like we don't we don't get those. If anything's the you know, the subtle lines of omniscient might be more narrative in the sense of the big yeah. picture. But definitely I felt grounded in Quentin. I thought that was important because we are dealing so heavily with his emotional problems, right. emotional struggle. Yeah. And I know we're going to get into this in the next question, but I think we should talk about like how the author may- painted him in such a way where we understand his f- mental state, mm-hmm. but we aren't annoyed by him because writers are always yes. worse. like how do i write a depressed yes. character and not go too far yes um, and so i mean i think that's a perfect window into yeah that question so the fourth question is character and we're dealing with the question of which character should they care about the most meaning yeah. they as in the readers what character should the reader you know care care about the most yeah um, so, so i think there's no question that. no yeah, question I'll- it's quentin we like his friends i think to, you know to whatever level we want to like them but we, you know, we even like the paramedic, but we don't care. We're very invested in Quentin, and that's kind of it. We have, I think, six six characters that would be on set yeah, that we probably. see in this. So, because yeah. we have Quentin, Julia, James, the paramedic, the Elliot. boy who's smoking at the end, and yeah. the the dead body, right? right? <laughs> so we have quite a few characters that we see. Definitely, and again, I think the POV helps with this making us care most about Quentin. For me personally, I found him, of course, like this was the goal, right? Through interiority, I found him the most relatable and right. have felt a lot of what he has felt. Right. You know, so it's like that that idea of he's sympathetic in the sense that he does feel like he's the one who's going to get overlooked. He's kind of frustrated with himself for not being happy. Like, right. I'm, you know, I'm the middle, middle class. I have a good life in the middle, middle class, he talks about. So why am I unhappy? And how his unhappiness, his only really relief or release from that is to then go to Fillory in his mind and imagine what could be. And I think that a lot of people have done that. You know, a lot of reason why people love certain series and why they read them over and over again is because that world offers them something that they haven't quite been able to satisfy in their real life, the reality versus the, you know, the imagination. Well, and let me let me highlight this line that I pulled out because it it Mm -hmm. perfectly goes with what you said. It says in Fillory, you felt the appropriate emotions when things happen. Happiness was a real, actual, achievable possibility. It came when you called or no, it never left you in the first place. Mm -hmm. So, like Mm -hmm. he totally thinks that this is the answer. And and he there's even another part that I pulled out. It says when he's thinking about James. He says the real problem with being around James was that he was always the hero. Yeah. And what did that make you? Either the sidekick or the villain. Yes. I love that line. I do too. We get so much insight into his worldview and to who he is. And like, I mean, even if we're confident people, we've probably all felt this way at some point or another. Definitely. You know, especially Um, with with your best friends. You love your best friends. But at some point we also do compare. And if we're feeling in a place of a low then we're going to, I always think of Taylor Swift's song, <laughs> Antihero, you know, it's like, I'm the problem, it's me. 
So yeah. you tend to go <laughs> to that place. I found this really interesting because right shortly after that, let me see if I can pull it up. There's fun, you know, pretty teenage like upper teenager banter between yeah. James, Julia, and Quentin. You know, more sophisticated, but immature at the same time banter. Right. We have some jokes about wings and things like that. Yeah. So <laughs> you know, we're, we're like more in that area. But right after he talks about James being the hero, there's this, James is talking about like, why did I eat so much? Yeah. And then Julia says, because you're a greedy pig, because you're tired of being able to see your feet, because you're trying to make your stomach touch your penis. And then James puts his hands behind his head, his fingers in his wavy chestnut hair, his camel cashmere coat wide open to the November cold and belched mightily. So it's really funny because this is, they're kind of describing him as sexier right like with his hair carefree and then he belches and it's like so for someone like quentin it's just interesting to see that from his perspective versus like julia's perspective or an omniscient perspective because julia obviously loves him when is is having that banter then quentin's immediate thought goes to cold never bothered him james that being quentin felt cold all the time like he was trapped in his own private individual winter so it's just really interesting because quentin's seeing James as the hero and then he's seeing how free and easy he is. And like right. that makes Julia laugh. And it's, you know, it's these funny, easygoing type of qualities. And Quentin and whether or not James and Julia see Quentin as that or not really is doesn't matter because right. he, because Quentin sees himself as isolated in his own private individual winter. Right. I think this is really important because he's constantly comparing him to external things, whether it be other people, situations, whatever. And that's, he's looking for that compass or that answer outside of himself. And that's Mm -hmm. what we hope he learns throughout the novel is like, hey, it's not outside of you. You know, you need to find that, that something, whatever it is inside yourself. Right. And, you know, that's kind of what we want to see. But it is interesting, even on the line level, it's like comparing the words that are used is very effective, are very effective when it comes to comparing. Also comparing, like you said earlier, is super normal. We all do it. Right. You know, even right. if we're like totally happy and love our best friends, we still compare. Such a good yeah. way to get the reader in his perspective and relating to him. Right. When he is comparing himself to James, I don't see it as resentment so much as sadness. Right. That's where it's not like going to live up to that. Right. And then even later, when they're about to go into the interview, James says something like Quint- James has a strong awareness of when Quentin needs to be pulled out a little right. bit and he does it. You can tell like he kind of ca- he cares about his friend and he talks about I forget where it is now, but he says something along the lines of like, I know no you, one understands right? you like no I one do. understands you but me like I do. Yes, exactly. And it's so, like, you know, that there's this deep rooted friendship with that. At the same time, you can imagine how challenging that would be to be in love or you know to be attracted to your best friend's girlfriend girl yeah it's your friend right yeah so i think that that makes him really relatable the pressures of college it seems like the expectations of what he is supposed to be doing versus where he goes is there and then of course dealing with the fascination of the dead body and then being handed exactly like what you were talking about before the question is more along the lines of what do you do when you're you're handed what everything you you've dreamed, right? Everything yeah. that you've dreamed about before. And he is given that in the end and starts to go forward with the manuscript yeah. that he reads the magicians. And, but I think that is the big question of the story. Will you change because you are given 
what you've always dreamed that you could have? And that's a very different question from something like a Harry Potter. And to kind of just go back into that, I wanted to mention about the sympathetic qualities. So one of Harry's greatest qualities is his humility, I think, you know, alongside it with his courage and his loyalty. Right. And Harry, when you meet Harry and and Sorcerer Stone and he's under the cupboard under the stairs, he's this 11-year-old boy who has been abused by his aunt and uncle and cousin for his entire life. And he's still not bitter about it. He's just kind of dreams of more like if, you know, yes, it would be great if I could have these things, but you don't see him sitting there and wallowing in pity. And even when he's given things, I think his humility, when he's the boy who lived, he doesn't want the fame, you know? So that's a big quality of Harry Potter is his humility. But we kind of see him in this way of not really dreaming that there is a possibility for something better so that when the letter is handed to him, it's this, oh my gosh, my life could be better than this. Here's my way out. And there's a great excitement with that. And then with the magicians, with Quentin, he desperately dreams of something better. Right. But are you going to be given it? I mean, what are you going to do with it if it's given to you? Can you change? So it's interesting because we've kind of flipped the question. Right. With their situations. Right. And it's like we said before, it's more age appropriate. It would mm-hmm. not make sense either way you flipped it. Right. So right. like if Harry was a very self-aware 11 year old, that would be strange. Right. I mean, could totally be possible. I don't know. But it probably just the, be the case, norm. Though. Right. Yeah. And then if we flipped it and Quentin was a 17, 18 year old boy <laughs> living under the stairs, not having any agency, being abused by his family, you know, that would be weird, too. Yeah. So I think it's it's just really cool. Like you said, it's the same, but different, right? Similar, but different. Exactly. I also think it's funny that like Quentin, like he said, he, he knows the answer to his own problem in these opening chapters. He has a good life. He has the setup for things that other people would want. And he mm-hmm. still is seeking more because he has to go into himself to, to find the happiness. Yeah. So it's like we, if we're paying attention, we kind of already know it's going to go two ways, right? He's either going to accept reality and be happy and find that happiness in himself or he's still going to be the same by the end but and that first choice is a hard choice right right like that is that is a hard thing that i think is very relatable to these older ages right because we do have to start to we have to start to figure out yeah we have to take responsibility we have to start to figure out that like life is never going to be all fun and games and what do you do with that right so Well, and also like, you know, I've gone to therapy before and they tell you that, you know, if it's bad things, you can't blame other people. If it's good things, you can't attribute them all to other people. It's about how you react to things. Right. Mm -hmm. And so it's funny because Quentin throughout the whole story, even now when we meet him on page one, whether it's bad or good, it's like not in his hands. Right. Right. Except there's this kind of I'm not equal or I'm not as good as these other people. But then when bad things happen. Sometimes he blames himself and sometimes he blames other people. Right. When good things happen, it's like, you know, I'm less than, but also other people are more than. So it's just really interesting. Like, no matter what, it's, there's still like, you know, he's still not getting to the answer. Right. If it's good or bad, he's still questioning everything. He's really interesting. Yeah. Again, just really speaks to, you know, a really realistic mirror of what I think people in this age category could be going through. Right. Okay. So let's move on to question five. Question five deals with setting. 
Yeah. And that question is where and when does the story take place? I think really interesting for this, Savannah, because we are given the different fantasy setting. That, that is what we're changing a lot. Right. But it's also kind of tips the hat off to, as I mentioned, I think like that at least the entrance of it, a Narnia-esque feel, right. in my opinion. And I'm pretty uh, sure the author said that Fillory, the books and all this were were based on Narnia or his right. obsession with Narnia. I mean, it's so, like, it's good. Like that's the juggernaut of these portals, right? Right. So, okay. But so, so yeah, so we're, about setting. well, we're in Brooklyn, New York, right? And it's during his final year in high school because we know he's going to college. We know it's November. It says that in the text. And then specifically, we are going into a man's house. So this is the guy that's doing the interview for Princeton. We go through, you know, the Brooklyn streets through an overgrown garden, and then we end up on the grounds of break bills. So we get all of that in this first chapter, which is amazing. And also why I think this, when we break down the scenes, we'll see why it's yeah. complicated. It's a doozy. Yeah. yeah. But I, I also just want to pull out something real quick. I think it's page, I have a printed copy, so yeah. I don't know what the Kindle version would be. But That's page funny. six, he talks about when Quentin needs to, when he needs to break away from his reality and let his mind wander into Fillory. Yeah. And then there's a page break and it says, Christopher Flover's Fillory and Further as a series. And it ends with, it never left you in the first place. So it's not even quite two pages, but it's page six and seven for me. And I thought it was interesting because we do break off to get a very detailed description of Fillory right. in the setting, which we then get, you know, bits and pieces of as he starts to enter it at the end. Right. So I thought that was a really interesting way to set up this world in a way that wasn't just dumping on us details right. for details sake because they're satisfied also at the end of that chapter we're excited because we see the obsession starting to become true i think that this was really stylistic and how it did this because setting is so important for this story so it was important to pay attention to have more description and details of setting in this first chapter where if you were in another novel where setting is important but not maybe to the significance the level of significance as this book you probably wouldn't need this much description of a setting right. in your first chapter. But in fantasy, setting is usually immersively important. So you will see more descriptions of setting well, in the first And chapter. also because it's a portal fantasy, he had to do kind of heavy lifting on two settings, right? So we weren't getting to break bills until the end of the first chapter. Right. So we did have to give some kind of hint at Fillory. It makes sense because Quentin's also obsessed with Fillory. So it's not random. It's not weird. It adds to the character. It adds to the setting. It adds to the plot. Definitely. Okay. Let's head into question six. So question six, now we're going to deal with emotion. The question is, how should they feel, they again being the reader, right. about what's happening? Yeah. So I always like to think about kind of three, when I'm looking at fantasy, three main emotions, and it's curiosity, concern, and wonder. In all stories, maybe we're not trying to evoke wonder, but in fantasy, we definitely are. So in this first chapter, I'm concerned about Quentin because we know how unhappy he is. There's no question. We know he longs for something more, which, again, I think is relatable. We're curious about the strange interaction with the paramedic, the envelope with the manuscript, and about this new place he's arrived at. So there's, you know, a lot of curiosity being evoked. And we're also curious about, like, how is he going to turn out? So we're curious and concerned about Quentin. And then there's wonder because we hear about Fillory and... The text evokes similar feelings of wonder in us as fantasy readers, you know, and then at the end of the chapter, he goes through a portal that and we don't understand what has happened. So 
considering the rest of the book, I think these are the three perfect emotions to feel in the beginning. What do you think, Abigail? Well, I think that you executed that beautifully. <laughs> I <laughs> also thought about it a lot. Yes. Well, I can tell it was very well articulated. I also think that intrigue is the one that I really hinge on as well, as well as the emotional pillar that I've, I've talked about before. Yeah. I am concerned for his emotional state. It's very difficult to pull yourself out of depression when you're in it, or at least unhappiness when he's in it. And especially since he doesn't understand why right. he's in it. You know, so there is that concern and that sympathy that I have for him. The dead body on the page, and this could just be because of over a decade studying stories. I'm going here and I'm saying to myself, there is no way that this can just be a coincidence when this interviewer for Princeton had this manuscripts of the magicians like there has to be something in there now this is I'm, I'm asking this almost a posio question because i am very intrigued and i see that they're also life and death stakes in that way potentially because yeah. is this dead body just a dead body right or is there a bigger game yeah. at play here so and you won't see i don't remember so you have to you have to answer this. Yeah, and this, is, this is where I get confused on the show versus the book because mm -hmm. in the show, I believe it's used as more of like a setup to bring the paramedic who ends up being Jane Chatwin together mm -hmm. with Quentin. But I think in the book, she's been, I know either way, she's been watching him. So she's, this is her chance to kind of get in and see if he's the guy that is going to solve the problems. And we that's also learn. We see that, right? Because I think that when you're seeing, it's her that I think you're sitting with and you're asking yourself, yeah. There has to be more to her. There's a lot it's of attention. Her more, spent yeah, on her. it's her more than the dead body. I think the dead body is an opportunity for her to get in there. But yeah, there's nothing like, you know, evil going on with the dead body. Yeah, but it's like almost when you're first reading this, probably as a reader, I, at yeah. least I know when I'm reading this, I'm questioning, is there more to this? Yeah. But and the I attention, think and then the attention is put on the paramedic, especially because in a very smooth way, because we have Quentin wishing that Julia would look at him the way that she yeah. looks at James. And then he talks about why does the paramedic have to be attractive? Like, you know, he's attracted to her. Right. So it's interesting because like we're going, we're kind of smoothing it over with here it is. Like we have his, his, he's locking in on certain details of this, but the dialogue exchange is lighthearted and they kind of like, well, at least like for the paramedic, right? And she talks, she says something about why would you be sorry you didn't kill him type right. of thing. And then he's thinking about that. He's like, well, you know, I think that yeah. just by being a human, you'd be sorry that someone died. So it's yeah. interesting. There is, there is a tension spent on the, ex the dialogue exchange between the two yeah. of them. And we so, don't know that she's feeling him out, you know, for no, other right. reasons. But I do think it's funny that Quentin notices that James notices their interaction and he's just like, you know, for once in my life, someone's more interested in me than James. Mm -hmm. So they're like Abigail saying, the way that our attention goes is we kind of skip over like, what could this paramedic be about? And we're focused on like, ooh, this must feel good for Quentin. Oh, I wonder how James is feeling, you know, whatever. We're focused more on the right. surface, which is, I think, artfully done. And James kind of gets grumpy after that. He does. <laughs> well, and I think so. he also gets grumpy, which is really interesting because Quentin takes the envelope. Yes. And it's almost like James was unwilling to kind of do the adventurous thing or the, you yep. know, he was unwilling to take that action. So he might be comparing himself to Quentin a little bit. And that's where I think, how should they feel about what's happening? That really starts to overlap now with this last question. Yeah. Of I, I like to relate this to stakes there, you know, 
we're looking at the hook as well with, with this question. Right. We're looking at premise as well with this question. But why should readers care about what happens next? And yeah. I think that that decision right there is what we're really hinged on is yeah. when Quentin says yes and James says no. And you can almost see like James regretting it in that moment. Right. But Quentin is not. Right. Right. It's like it's like he's, he's still hoping for adventure. It. Right. And I think like that's why personally I care. It's like at that point, you know, I feel the same as him, especially when he goes through and he's at break bills and he sees Elliot. You know, I'm yeah. excited for this new adventure. I'm skeptical because like I'm just like Quentin, yeah, right? Stuff. Could this be too mm -hmm. good to be true? But I'm right. also hopeful that I'm going to get on to go on the same adventure that Quentin gets to go on. And maybe right. there will be happiness in Fillory. You know, exactly. this is your chance to find out. Right. Yeah. Yeah. OK. Awesome. So that concludes the key first chapter questions. Now which was a lot already. Yes, which was <laughs> a lot. So now we're going to dig into scenes and we'll do this as concisely as we can. Yeah. Uh, but ultimately there was, I found this challenging to figure out where are we breaking up scenes? And I told Savannah, I think a lot of, for me, I see a lot of scenes sliding into scenes yeah. and then it's just a matter of, but I will say scenes do exist, right? Yeah. You have to have a first chapter with scenes ideally, right? So there are sometimes prologues that don't necessarily have a scene and then you'd move into what is the first scene, the first chapter. This one, I think we're having multiple scenes. Yeah. And Savannah and I were debating between, is this two scenes? Is this three scenes? We can see arguments for each. We don't necessarily have, this is, I'm super a thousand percent confident. This is my final answer. Yeah. <laughs> so, million dollar answer. So we'll, we'll go into it and just fall apart and give our thoughts on that. Yeah, and we also did this on purpose because we wanted to show what happens. Like, we're not always sure, and that's okay because what we're going to land at is why does this work? So, right. you know, I think I, I see this firsthand a lot in the in my course and my membership where people are like, but where exactly does it start and end? And it's like, yes. okay, but is that really what we want to focus on or is it the arc of change and kind of the the conflict and the decision and and the things that are more important than like what actual word does the scene right. start and end on. Right. So we kind of wanted it to be a little messy just to show A, that we don't always have the answers and B, you might not either. And what can you still take from your analysis? So we're going to figure out whether this is our hypothesis is two or three scenes. We do have arguments for each. I think Abigail and I are pretty pretty much in agreement on the first scene. So we think, and we like to think about this in terms of goals, right? So one of the things, kind of talking all over the place, but one of the things we like to look at is goals. So we say, what are the goals that we can identify of the scene within this chapter, right? So the very first thing we know that Quentin's doing is he's going to his Princeton interview, right? But how will we know that that is achieved or not? He's either going to complete the interview or he's not. So we can start building out the structure around that question and that answer. So this is where we kind of agreed that we have one scene and it's Quentin and Elliot or Quentin and James and Julia, they go to this man's house for the interview. So all the stuff in the beginning is more or less a setup of uh, the inciting incident. And Abigail, you can jump in if you agree or disagree. I think the inciting incident is when nobody answers the door. So they knock once, nobody answers. It's kind of like this guy's expecting us. We didn't expect nobody to answer. I think the turning point happens when they knock again and the door opens slightly. So, you know, mm -hmm. minutes have passed, the turning point, the door opens, 
And then they face this choice of what to do. So do we call out? Do we go inside? Do we wait? Quentin realizes that James is really hesitant. And in the interiority, we learn that Quentin's like, this is how those fantasy books start, right? Something strange that doesn't compute happens. And his interest is really piqued. He's like, if this was a fillery book, this would be the beginning, right? So for him, that's kind of the crisis is like, do I go in or not? The climax, he goes in and, oh, that's the climax. He goes in. The resolution is that he explores the house a little bit, including this cabinet that piques his interest. Because again, he thinks it could be, if it was ever going to happen to him, now's the time. Mm-hmm. He explores it. It's not a portal to anywhere cool. It's not a portal at all. And then he turns around and he sees a dead body on the floor. Any thoughts there, Abigail? I would agree with you in all of that. Yeah. I will say when I was trying to debate, is this two or three scenes? And I had talked to Savannah about this off podcast. I could see why people would think maybe a turning point isn't happening or maybe an inciting incident isn't happening until we see the dead body. Because there's a lot of him just getting to the interview. If we talk about goals, right? What is his goal really in this first scene? And I would say it's to go have this interview with Princeton. Would you agree with that? Yeah, this is alumni. So the goal here is I need to go have this interview. He doesn't even seem like super excited about it, but it is something that he's going to do. And sorry, my two-month-year-old is now joining us in the call. So if you hear baby squeaks. Welcome to the call. (laughs) (laughs) If you hear something's happening the diaper or baby squeaks that there she is so when he's moving through that i'm always looking for what are the significant events and actions revelations that are now going to interfere with that goal i would agree with you i think that you could end with seeing the dead body and that's where we're going to see us sliding into the second scene originally when i was looking at this i was so hinged on the dead body i was wondering if that was where i go with the turning point or incident incident when we're seeing that dead body and then all of this introductory of character of his fascination with fillery really like movement towards that dead body is going to be what works it's just a really long introduction before an incident incident or a turning point but I like Savannah's analysis better. And I think that this will just mean that we're going to split it into probably three scenes instead of two. Yeah. And I like that because I do think that it pulls us deeper into Quentin and his obsessions of wanting something more exciting than what his life currently is. Yeah. Which is first called to our attention through his interiority, like you said, when that door doesn't open and then is kind of creaked ajar. The other thing I'll say too is, Is it wrong if we said the dead body was the inciting incident? I mean, I don't necessarily think there's a wrong way to interpret this, but the reason I don't stop there or I don't see that as the inciting incident is because there's so much attention paid to Quentin's setup, really thinking that there could be another world besides our own and he really Mm -hmm. wants to escape. So -hmm. it's kind of like I I also wouldn't argue with saying the turning point could be when he sees the cabinet and then he... It's like, do I, you know, follow through with exploring this, even though I might be embarrassed and then he is at the end or not? Because it's an important decision because this is what makes him Quentin. And this is why it's, I think, fun when Abigail and I look at it from two different perspectives. When she has not read the story for so many years and she's coming to it, she's naturally going to be more on the surface of what's happening. Mm -hmm. And then when I'm like, super nerd over here and <laughs> engaged in like every single line looking for meaning. None of these c- scenarios are right, are wrong or right, but it's just interesting. And just to go off of that more, I think yeah. that, you know, reinforcing again what we talked about with content genre, 
I think that that can play a role in what you really right. start to pay, what you you start to define as the big commandments. You know, we use the five commandments of storytelling to right. break down the scene because you tend to lean into what you believe was prioritized as the greatest importance in the scene level. And if you were looking at what is Quentin really caring about, that would make sense to go more towards that door. You know, something like not that it can't work this way. But often a dead body on the page, that's going to be loud and it's going to take up a lot of attention quickly. However, look how long it took for us to get to that dead body. And we're not dealing with something like a crime story, which maybe that would be pretty common in setting incident for a first chapter in a crime story. Not that it can't be the inciting incident for an action or for maybe even worldview or content wise and definitely not in a fantasy. However... I think that we have to be asking yourself, what is really upsetting Quentin? And for us, as we're looking over this again and again, like you said, there is no right or wrong answer to this. I doubt Lev Grossman used these when he was extreme. Right, when he went to his extreme. I don't think his editor probably did. But these are tools that we like to use because it helps us understand how to cut scenes in order to understand how to plan that story while capturing the reader's attention. And also where to put emphasis, because if this, like you're saying, if this was meant to be more of an action story or something more mm-hmm. like Harry Potter, our mm-hmm. emphasis would need to be different. Yes. Uh, so again, just why it's so important to know genre. So yep. either way, I think this was the easier part for us. We're like, OK, we uh, agree that this is the first scene. And yep. by the end of it, Quentin can't accomplish his goal. So that goal window is closed. The interviewer is dead. He's not going to have the interview. Right. So then the second scene, this is where we had more trouble because there's a few important things that happen. So after this, the paramedics come and he talks to the woman who ends up being Jane Chatwin. She gives him a manuscript. He opens it. He follows the note and he arrives at break bills. So this is where we had trouble because we're like, okay, the conversation with Jane Chatwin, the paramedic, is very significant. However, it's a very short little blurb within the chapter. It's like 1200 words. So I think what we're kind of landing on is that it's either within the scene where it's kind of like he gets the dead bodies there, he gets the manuscript, and then his decision leads him to break bills. Or it's like the part with Jane Chatwin leads to this decision of do I take the manuscript or not? And then he takes it and then it opens up a new scene. So we were torn between those two options. And this is what we really wanted to talk through live. Abigail, let's think about his goals because I think that's what's going to help us figure this out. So what do you think his goal is? Yeah. And I just really emphasize that because I do think whenever you're stuck analyzing scenes, go back to what is the goal. Yeah. Because I think that can help you start to figure that out. After he sees that dead body, when we're thinking about what is his goal, I just want to find the wording of it. Do you know what, do you remember what page I do. And I think I know what you're going to say. So he wants to leave. He doesn't want to be involved in this. (laughs) So Um, yeah, 15 minutes later in the foyer was full of people and activity. Quentin sat in a corner in the cane chair like a pallbearer at the funeral of somebody he'd never met, right? Yeah. So very awkward. I feel like I have to stay here, but I don't want to stay here. <laughs> yeah, and he even says like he's not making eye contact. If he didn't move, nobody could involve him in this any further. <laughs> right. And it is interesting because like when we get into the conversation with the paramedic and he's saying, I'm sorry, he's having this kind of like side conversation with James about almost feeling guilty, like I shouldn't have called right. him a pedophile, Clinton said out loud. That was wrong, extremely wrong, James agreed. They spoke slowly, like they were both trying out language for the very first time. They don't know what their place is in this. 
Right. It's like, you know, like, are we going to be questions? Are we not going to be questioned? Can we just go? Can we slide out the door? It's very much in that realm. But also at the same time, he's, whether or not this is a brutal dead body, which it's not in that case, we're not dealing with like a mass murder here or not. Seeing a dead body is shocking, right? right. I think that especially the younger you are, the less death that you've encountered, hopefully that's something that's you're going to not really know what to do in that situation. Right. And that's, yeah. So I think that's really what the goal is here. So then it's a matter of how well, is he going to go about having that goal interrupted or how yeah. is he going to achieve that goal? Right. And I also think it's, so it's kind of, we have to zoom out too, because we could say his goal is to just not be involved. But at this point, would we say his goal is to leave and go home? Or do we think that comes later? Mm, I see what you're saying. This will determine what we do. I think he's more immediate right now. When he leaves this building, do you think that there's a sense of him really having a goal of I'm just going to go home? Yeah. So there's a part where right below where he says when they're kind of like James says, this is bad. Quentin says extremely bad. And then he says, if he didn't move, nobody can involve them. And then below that, he wondered when it would be all right for them to leave. He couldn't get rid of the feeling of shame. So he wants to avoid negative feelings and leave. Right. right? Sure. And then. So he wants to leave. And then like later on, it says, how's he going to explain this to his parents? So right. I think he's kind of thinking like, I've already been gone a while. And right. the, the reason I'm putting emphasis on this is for two reasons, because when he follows the note into the garden, that's kind of when it's like he's not going home or when that's he right. opens the manuscript, he's not going home. That's right. And then I'm thinking like backing up from that, if his goal is to just get out of here, Yes, the paramedic gets involved in that and prevents him from getting out of here, but he still does decide to leave. So are we saying that he leaves and he accomplishes his goal of getting out? Or is it that the goal is he wants to leave and, and go home and like get away from the situation and then everything's kind of a complication to that, you know? I see what you're saying. And I don't know the answer for sure, but... Yeah, I mean, if I had to, if I had to pick, I lean towards he just needs to get out of this building. And then there's a new goal of go home. Yeah. And that's where I'd say like we have a very short scene that then we have another scene before the chapter ends. Yeah. So um, let's analyze it that way just for fun. And then we can maybe come back on top of that and say, if we were to do this as one scene, what would that be? Sure. So let's say that his goal is to just get out of this situation, whatever that means, like literally leaving the situation. Right. So I'm um, going to interrupt that then is going to be questioning. Right. Right. The the par Just like the fact that they can't and the paramedic kind of taking an interest in him. Right. Yes. And kind of Ellie or uh, not Elliot, James. Well, they're both kind of talking. Right. But right. The, the paramedic announces he's dead and she's and they're like, what happened? Cerebral hemorrhage. Nice way to go if you have to go, which he did, must have been a drinker. So she's like drawing them into the situation, which is opposite of his goal. Mm -hmm. So then the turning point, what would we say that would be? Well, I think that's when she hands him the envelope. Yeah, I and, do too. Because then that, that pushes him into the decision of do I take it or not? Right. And he even, again, he's comparing himself to James. So he says something like he is even more inclined to take it because he knew James wouldn't. If we're going on that train of thought, the climax is he takes it. And then the resolution is he accomplishes that goal of getting out of here because now him and James are outside on the stoop. And James, they're upset at each other and they part ways. And just to reinforce why Quentin is the character that we care about the most, I think that comparison again of he takes it partly because he knows James won't, that is something interesting to say about him. He takes this because James is more satisfied with his life. 
than Quentin, right. it seems like, right? So he doesn't need that envelope to fix anything. And Quentin sees this as his adventure. So right. he doesn't know what's in that, but he's going to take that. We're going to follow Quentin because he has more to gain and more to lose than James right. does. Yeah, everything's always a possible escape for him. So we could say that closes out the scene, right? And they've parted ways. Now Quentin's alone. He's also got what he doesn't know yet is a ticket to a different world because he does have the manuscript. So then let's carry on that train of thought. So that would be scene two. I do think it's valuable to look at that as scene two because the interaction with the paramedic is so significant to what pulls him into the conflict later with the Chatwins. And we Um, find out that she's not just a paramedic too. There is definitely attention spent on her that as a reader, subconsciously or consciously, you're expecting something to pay off with that. Right. Okay. Yes, I agree. And so then scene three, his goal, we're saying now specifically is like he's accomplished his goal of getting out. So now he wants to go home. He's thinking about how am I going to explain this to my parents? Right. So the conflict that gets in the way of that is what's in the envelope. What's in the envelope. Exactly. So that's where I would say the Insidious Incident is probably opening the envelope and seeing the manuscript. And seeing it's book six of Fillering Further, which we know because he's told us there's only five books. So then the note we know flies out of the book. It flies into this garden. He follows it. And then he gets to a point in the garden, which I think is the turning point where he says he thinks he's going through poisonous plants, possibly. And then in the text, it says he stopped. All of a sudden, it was quiet. No car horns, no stereos, no sirens. His phone had stopped ringing. It was bitter cold and his fingers were numb. And it literally says, like, turn back or or keep going. Yeah, exactly. Which is the crisis. And what is really interesting about that, just real quick, Savannah, I think yeah. that I could see people arguing, well, is the inciting incident when the letter gets ripped out of his hand? Yeah. Or is it when he opens the envelope? But I think I think opening the envelope, because that is where his intrigue is really peaks the most. Right. And then when the letter gets ripped out of his hands, if his, and again, it's based on his goal of going home, though. Right. Because then when the letter gets ripped out of his hands, we have a convocation because this is now interfering with what's excited him. Right. right? But if if you had a different goal, then maybe you would be arguing something different. And again, there's no perfect answer to this. But yeah. why can we argue why something works or not doesn't work? Because yeah. we can see how it could be executed in the way that we're seeing this play out. And we'll talk about that because I do want to do a version if these two scenes were one scene just for fun. So hang on to your hats. Yeah, sure. So the climax is he keeps going. Like he says, turn back or go. He keeps going. And the resolution is he arrives at this on this grassy green and he sees a boy smoking a cigarette obviously he's changed locations he's been pulled into the conflict he doesn't know that yet but Mm -hmm. he is and he's getting what he thinks he wants so he's getting a new world where happiness could be possible Mm -hmm. so now just for fun no yeah yeah he even (laughs) says is this fillery like he's still hoping that but just for fun let's think about because i know there are people out there that are going to like to nerd out more on this yeah let's look let's go back to in the house and let's say if his goal was at that point to leave and go home right sure we could analyze this as one whole scene instead of two separate scenes and i think it would just be very similar right so the paramedic is talking to him she hands him you could say that handing him the manuscript is the turning point or opening the envelope is the turning point whatever it gets him to the same spot no matter how you analyze it. So I think that's what's really cool is that if Abigail showed up and said, I think it's one scene and I thought they were two, we would still end up at the same answer, which is that's right. the point of the scene. Right. 
And then again, it's just you're changing that analysis based on what you think his goal is initially, but the events to get him to where he needs to go. Right. Or I mean, the also, same is maybe in a different order of importance. Is that what you're saying? Yeah. And also the genre, like this is all, I'm, what I'm getting at. Spoiler to my own thoughts coming in five seconds. <laughs> but a lot of writers will spend a lot of time on their opening chapters going like, well, what is the inciting incident, turning point, yes. whatever. And then if they don't know the rest of the story, you can't know where to put emphasis and where not to. So, you know, your first version, this chapter might contain two scenes, just like we said in the second example. And then when you come back to it, you might say, hey, that part with Jane Chatwin's really significant. I need to expand that. I need to add in commandments to that part. It's really going to be three scenes. That's something you might not know until you get to the end of your draft. Either way, like I think what I'm trying to say is that if you no matter how you look at it, the point is still the same because you're thinking about it on that higher level. And then you mm -hmm. can go back and kind of fine tune it and put the emphasis wherever you need to. Exactly that. I am a huge advocate of knowing your story ending before you write your book. Yeah. Because I think it's going to greatly change everything. Right. What is it? I, there's a T.S. Eliot quote that says, what we call the beginning is often the end. And to make it end is to make a beginning. Yeah. Really in that line of once you know your end, your beginning is going to change. And what you elaborate on in detail is going to alter based on what you need the reader to know to move forward in a satisfying and cathartic way. Yeah. So, yeah, I, I love that you did that challenge, Savannah, because we do. We get there. And if I were to analyze it as the two scenes as one scene. I think you could even ar still argue that the incident is maybe being handled the envelope. Did you say the turning point is opening it? The yeah. turning point might also still be the letter getting ripped away. Like the, the goal is, would you agree that then like the, the crisis still needs to be about do I go forward or do I not? I mean, it could be, but also I wouldn't be mad if you said to me the crisis is open the envelope or not, take the envelope mm -hmm. or not. Like either way, we're getting him. The results are You're still. Going, it's about yeah. going forward, right? And this is what like people I feel like want to argue a lot about. I mean, not with me. I'm not saying anybody argues with me, but it's like we want to overanalyze and argue with ourselves yeah. that we have to pick the right thing. And it's like, actually, you need to know the point of what you're doing. Yes. And yes, then yes. that's the only thing that matters, not how you describe the arc of change necessarily. It's just, is it appropriate for what you're trying to do? And then it's not necessarily like the end of the world. If you call something an inciting incident and I call it a turning point. The fact of the matter is, is it doing, is it delivering on the point you're trying to get across? That's right. So. I like pointing that out because people spend way too much time like really overanalyzing it. And when we're writing our first and second and even third drafts, we're not going to have all the stuff to analyze like we're, you know, seeing in the text because it's been through multiple rounds of revisions and rewrites, right? Mm -hmm. So it's like when you're first analyzing your own scenes, you might just realize your conflict doesn't escalate or that you don't have a turning point. And that's really valid. Like, it's still very valid to go through the exercise, but don't get so bogged down in the the nuances of, you know, the different things. Yeah. And that's also why when I'm coaching writers, I like to say, we're going to use these five commandments as editing tools. Yeah. Because you can't, I mean, you can, you can use that as a strategy to plot out scene by scene. But sometimes I see people go so micro in the, in the planning stages that it really paralyzes them because they uh, you need to allow things to evolve i guess yeah and so you know exactly what that what is the point of the scene and how can you best execute that are the details in there there's might be shifting 
when you actually right. write the scene with it. But uh, I do think that it's valuable. You you need to know why one scene leads into the next. What is that cause and effect trajectory? Right. So that I think you need is the planning tool. Yeah. And we in Notes to Novel, my course, we do goal conflict decision because mm-hmm. I at certain points, like we don't need to go so far in the weeds. So, you know, right. feel free to take that as a listener and then come back around. If you're, you know, let's say you're reading a scene in your story and you're realizing the conflict doesn't escalate properly, right. then you can go in and say, okay, well, what is the inciting incident? What are those rising complications? And then what is the turning point? You mm-hmm. know, exactly. uh, so choose your own adventure, pick up and put down whatever tools you want. But yeah, I think no matter how we analyze this, we get to the same place. But our instinct is to say there are three scenes within this first chapter. Yep. Yep. I and, agree with that. And hopefully listeners can see how we got there and whether or not you totally agree with our logic, as long as we're for anybody listening, as long as anyone's able to defend and kind of explain how they got to their answer, I think we're all good to go. Thousand percent. And yeah. if you didn't get this, I'd love to hear from you. I'm sure Savannah would love to hear from yes. you. We always love to continue to nerd out about scenes. This is what we saw. Maybe you didn't see it that way. What did you see instead? You know, so yes. let's, let's continue this discussion off this podcast episode. So yeah, let us know. You can find us both on social media. Mm-hmm. I'm at Savannah Gilbo or at Savannah.Gilbo on Instagram. And you are at Abigail K. Perry on mm-hmm. Instagram, right? Yeah, exactly. So yeah. maybe we'll see you there. <laughs> All right. Thanks, everybody. Thank you for coming back for another episode of Lip Match. As I mentioned in the introduction, I'm back from maternity leave and I am thrilled to be here and provide you with new episodes in the upcoming weeks, months, and future. As always, if you ever have any questions, never hesitate to reach out to me. You can email me at abigailkperry at gmail.com or find me on my website, www.abigailkperry.com. I hope you'll join me next week for an incredibly insightful interview with Megan Stevenson. Megan Stevenson is an entrepreneur who used to work in the major publishing houses and now is the founder of Megan Stevenson's books, where they help authors, particularly with nonfiction books. Since 2012, the team at Megan Stevenson's books has helped clients earn over $5 million in advances from top publishers, including Penguin Random House, HarperCollins. Hay House and Hachette Book Group. So there's a ton to learn from her and I'm so excited to share her interview with you. Until then, I hope that you are having a wonderful time writing. It is NaNoWriMo if you're participating in that. Good luck. Finally, thank you. Thank you to anyone who takes time to rate and review the show. This signals to iTunes that this podcast is worth listening to and it helps me reach more writers like you hungry to learn more about the publishing industry and find that ideal literary agent for their writing career. That's all I have for today. I wish you a happy week full of great writing time. If you have any wins to share, definitely share them with me. I cannot wait to hear when you sign with the best literary agent for your business and writing career. And of course, celebrate your book when it comes out. 